Hello, my fellow lords and ladies, and welcome to the Console Kingdom podcast. My name is Jared. And I'm your co-host, lifelong gamer for over 30 years, and host of the YouTube channel Risky Bitness, Dan. Before we move on to our topic of the day, I wanted to thank all of our listeners who have downloaded the show so far, especially those who participated in our little game last time with the uh, Final Fantasy teams battling one another. We'll have the results of that for you pretty soon, so please stay tuned. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss those results. And if you can, kindly please leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice. That's really going to help kind of elevate our standing and get more people to listen to the show. And on today's episode, we are diving headfirst right into part two of our Final Fantasy retrospective. Final Fantasy 7 through 9, this is going to be a good one, a really good one. There is so much to cover here. Final Fantasy 7 through 9 is probably some of the most beloved Final Fantasy games of all time. Perhaps, sort of, kind of, maybe. <laughs> Just kidding. Anyway, they are, absolutely. Anyway, so without further ado, here we Go. Dan, I wanted to talk a little bit about a conversation we had briefly uh, in our last episode. And I wanted to bring up Final Fantasy VI and one of my favorite all-time gold standard RPGs, Chrono Trigger. And Chrono Trigger is one of my favorite games of all time. And I kind of wanted to discuss, because you had brought up, Dan how much you think Final Fantasy VI is a better game than Chrono Trigger. It is. And I, wanted, and I wanted to kind of hear your thoughts on why you think it is. I don't think it is. I know it is. It's a better game for a lot of reasons. I mean, I the last time I tried to play Chrono Trigger, I couldn't even get okay. into it. I couldn't even get into it. It was boring. It was but tedious. why? Boring and tedious. Yeah. I mean, come on! You you've got you've got so many different side quests. You start out at a millennial fair. I mean, it's time travel. The characters are lovable. Uh, not uh, a few, but the characters are lovable, and it's got everything you could ever want from a game. Now, Final Fantasy VI has plenty of characters and great story, and I would argue a much better final boss than Lavos was. But I just didn't quite get the emotional feels as I did with Chrono Trigger. Uh, Final Fantasy VI has way more emotional feels than Chrono Trigger. Chrono Trigger has a silent protagonist who is like basically a, a self-insertion character. He is pants. We have Chrono Pants. You put on your Chrono Pants and then you sort of experience the world through him. Uh, he's not a character. He doesn't exist. He's just sprites like there's no he doesn't have a personality there's nothing to get attached to there's nothing to sympathize or empathize with he's a blank slate character and the rest of the characters are you, just kind of obnoxious you could say that about chrono being silent but might i argue about that is in the legend of zelda we have had link as the protagonist for almost every single game in the series and he has never once spoken a single line of 
dialogue. It has always been text, and people love Link as a character. Sure, but now we're talking about two completely different styles of storytelling. The Legend of Zelda yes. tells its stories through its world. It tells its stories through the extensive lore. It doesn't tell its story through the actions and speech of its protagonist or supporting characters. In the later games, a little bit more. But especially if we go back in the beginning, there was no uh, character interaction between Link and the other characters in the game world. And if there was, it was extremely minimal. The storytelling was done by other methods. Uh, whereas in a game like Final Fantasy VI or Chrono Trigger, they both fall under that umbrella of square RPGs where the storytelling element of the game is very, very tightly based on the interactions of the characters. And having a protagonist that doesn't interact, it really mitigates by a lot how much emotional connection you can possibly have to that character and that world. And I get that. I, I can get that. And I, I definitely will say that I will give the edge to uh, character development and extrapolation on, uh, upon those lines to Final Fantasy VI. But I don't know. I can't put my finger on it. But for me, there's always been something about Chrono Trigger that has just been dear to my heart. I don't know if it's the techniques, like the techs um, that your characters can do. Uh, the magic system, which I thought was incredibly unique. Um, Antipode is such a fun spell. Luminaire, I mean, nuke the whole screen, why don't you? Uh, there's just so much about that game. And then the side quests are just fantastic. I feel like they're, with Final Fantasy VI, the second half of the game is a lot of, you know, you can do this to learn more about the characters or you can ignore it it's up to you basically mm -hmm. um kind of the same but the story in chrono trigger drives you more to uh the characters endings and and whatnot through its uh level design and whatnot um and areas and time periods and stuff like that i don't know i mean it's always been a tough decision for myself personally because you've got kind of 50-50. I mean, it's really hard, but I still I still got to give that edge to Chrono Trigger. It's a very beloved game. A lot of people really love it. I played through it once, uh, you know, when it came out when I was a kid. I think I played through it one more time, you know, many years later on an emulator. Uh, but... I don't think I finished it that second time because I got bored. Just got bored. And you know that's a valid, valid reason. I mean, if if it doesn't grip you, if it doesn't bring you into the world, it doesn't draw you in. Um, I feel like then it makes sense to not finish. You know, if it doesn't grab your attention. I mean, it's like okay, I'll play it through and the first time and then the second time but see the new game plus aspect of it and the multiple different endings i think is a very very unique thing that square did there um and that definitely bears mention because yeah it was novel honestly, at the time it was it was novel yeah. at the time but yeah. what other game series or what other game during that time had 16 different endings and 
you could New Game Plus and keep all your stuff aside from story items. Yeah, I mean, New Game Plus was cool, but again, if I'm not enjoying the game, then New Game Plus is kind of kind of meaningless for me. And that makes sense. I, I, I would say that. Now, that being said, what I would like is, is uh, for our listeners to uh, hop on our socials, either on Twitter or Facebook. Um, we'll drop those at the end of the show. You can uh, contact us and connect with us there and let us know. What do you guys think? What do you feel is the better game, Final Fantasy uh, they're VI? They're going to tear me apart. <laughs> or Chrono Trigger. And you know what? Sometimes, sometimes that's the way it goes. But I have a sneaking suspicion that there's more people on your side than you think. Oh, man. Honestly. Uh, I'm going to get beat up over this one. I'm not so sure about that. Well, if I'm going to get beat up anyway, I'm going to make one more statement. Final Fantasy VI is the best game on the Super Nintendo. Now, see, that is definitely in the conversation. It is on. It is on the conversation. Actually, I would kind of tend to agree with you there, as Final Fantasy VI definitely felt like it was optimized better than Chrono Trigger was for the Super Nintendo. In addition Didn't to they that, com- in addition to well, that, I was the just... Super Nintendo, the Super Nintendo is also the best console of all time. Oh, obviously, obviously, it really is. Uh, and and uh, just shout out to a few people that love the Nintendo 64. You're wrong, 100% wrong. Oh, I mean, that's a whole other that's a whole other topic. The Nintendo 64, man, I hate that thing. Just the controller is awful. There's like there's like maybe a dozen good games for it. it ugh, it's trash. I, I feel like I feel like we'd have to be hanging out in Chernobyl for a while to uh, be able to play uh, Nintendo 64 properly because we'd have to grow a third hand. You're right. Yeah, third hand. Absolutely. You need a third hand and uh, gotta gotta lose some brain cells. <laughs> definitely, definitely. So before we get too sidetracked here, You're right. <laughs> I want- I want to get into our main topic of conversation. Oh man, this one's going to be special. Final Fantasy on the PlayStation. And what better place to start than the legacy and the just how much changed when Sony and Square met and developed their games on a compact disc versus a cartridge. And I know that's a couple topics right there, obviously. But I wanted to start with just how special it felt when you put the disc in and you heard the music, you saw the intros, and you realized, wait a minute, this is a whole new era for the series i mean it was a magical experience it it truly was i mean as much as i loved how the intro to final fantasy 6 was it just they one-upped themselves right i mean in in 7 8 and 9 they really one-upped themselves moving forward uh in that time period 
Now, Dan, I wanted to to ask you. This is um, when you played Final Fantasy VII for the first time. When you popped it in your PlayStation for the first time, about what era, like what year, around the time, uh, did you play that? So, well, my first experience with Final Fantasy VII was secondhand because okay. it was I mean it was it was all the rage it was a huge huge buzz around this game now uh, we discussed before I'd been playing Final Fantasy since the first one on the NES so for me I was already a huge fan of the series but to a lot of other you know people it was new it was something they'd never experienced before now I remember I think the first time I was exposed to the game the first time I saw it was at my friend Annie's house so this game okay. came out. Uh, this game came out in nineteen ninety seven at the at, at the very beginning, uh, January January thirty first of nineteen ninety seven. So this game came out okay. when I was sixteen, um, and I remember first seeing it at my friend Annie's house. Her brother was playing, and uh, seeing the introduction was something I didn't experience until a little bit later. So I first saw like a little bit of uh, after leaving Midgar. I think the first thing I really saw was Calm and uh, the Midgar Zolum, uh, some of the earlier summons. Okay, okay. Um, I mean, when... But it did it did blow me away absolutely at the time because we'd never seen this before. These multiple camera angles and these three D summon monsters that coming come through. The, the graphical improvements alone were astonishing. Most definitely. And, you know, when I first played it, I'm going to self-admit this as well, I did not, I wasn't aware of Final Fantasy VII or the legacy of it, or like just how mm. popular it was um, until probably the year 2003. Really? I was a I was a junior in high school and my buddy was like, Have you played Final Fantasy Seven? I said, No. I had uh I had Final Fantasy Eight. I bought Final Fantasy Eight. Um it was me getting back into the series at the time because I was at a KB Toys of all places. Um and they had a bargain bin there and i think i picked up final fantasy 8 for like 10 bucks okay all right and so that was my reintroduction to this series and he and my buddy asked me he said hey have you uh have you played final fantasy 7 yet and i said no no i i i only played final fantasy 8 and he goes oh man you have no idea what you're missing here borrow this game yeah. Bar just borrow this game play this and uh, I have a funny story about that that I'll bring up later when we get closer into that conversation. But um, but yeah, so it was 2003. So, I mean, that's, you know, three, yeah. six years after it was released. And mm -hmm. I was blind. Like, I wow. knew nothing. So you weren't there for, like, the initial impact of how huge this game was. No. And, and well, I mean, I was. I was alive. But I wasn't aware of that whole craze at the time. 
it's incredibly difficult and for the younger crowd especially to really put into terms that you can understand just how huge this game was this game was a massive runaway hit and it changed absolutely everything about not just rpgs but about video games as a medium at the time and i'm not exaggerating when i say that this was a game changer in in just about every way now we were talking before about the n64 and how much that thing stinks I mean, do you know, Jared, how this happened that instead of developing these games exclusively for Nintendo, they started developing them for Sony instead? You know, I'm not sure how that happened, but one thing I do know for sure was that um, Sony and Nintendo had a deal going on uh, with a uh, potential add-on disk system add-on to the Super Nintendo or it's uh, Nintendo's next console. I can't remember which one, what it was. Uh, but it ended up falling through and Sony, having the technology already developed, just kind of finished developing the rest of it and introduced PlayStation. Now, as far as how Square came to be hand-in-hand uh, -hand with Sony and not Nintendo, I'm not very aware of how that happened well the way i understand it is that the nintendo 64 was for one thing incredibly expensive to develop for uh, the the developers would have to purchase a, a dev kit that uses like sgi silicon graphics cpu it was insanely expensive much more expensive than any other development hardware had been up to that point Okay. okay. On top of that, Nintendo had for a long time had business practices when it comes to their third parties that were really, really difficult to make money with and kind of like had a stranglehold on them. So Nintendo had a lot of control over what they did and like they had to buy their cartridge shells from Nintendo. Okay. Uh, at whatever price Nintendo asked them to pay. So they had very little say in the matter in terms of their own manufacturing. Uh, basically... Nintendo got the lion's share of all the profits for the third-party titles, and there really hadn't been an alternative up to that point that offered anything that Nintendo's console didn't offer. Like, yeah, you could develop for the Genesis instead of the Super Nintendo, but the result of that was going to be you're going to sell many fewer games than you otherwise would have, and the Genesis hardware was not as powerful as the Super Nintendo hardware in many ways, so you would have to make some uh, some compromises and sacrifices there. So Nintendo was the preferred platform for the third-party publishers pretty much through the 80s and 90s, at least in the U.S. Other parts of the world is a little bit different. Uh, also in Japan as well, for the most part. But there, then there was the, the PC Engine, that's a whole other story. But that's basically more or less the way it was. When Sony released the PlayStation, they had cheaper development kits. It was much cheaper to buy the media, the CD media, and you could buy it from a third party. You didn't have to buy it directly from Sony because they had a third party that actually took care of all that for them. And they, ma they made much better deals with the third party publishers that they got to keep more of their money. So Square was by far not alone in this decision. A lot of third party developers started developing their games for Sony rather than Nintendo, or they would develop for Nintendo later after they already made money with Sony. But, and uh, that makes sense business-wise because you yeah. think about it, you think about it, you're talking about a company that says, develop for us, but we get the profits. Right. Well, that doesn't make sense. Right. And one of the many reasons why a lot of these uh, up-and-coming games wind up going to the PlayStation also 
was because you could do things with CD-ROM media that you just couldn't do on a cartridge. And that's not to say that the cartridge media itself was totally bad, or that the Nintendo 64 wasn't a powerful system, because it was. The Nintendo 64 did some things very well. As much as I think overall the system is trash, it did do some things very, very well. Those cartridges did not have a lot of storage, but the system itself had a much faster processor, had more system memory in the system itself, so it could do a lot more things that uh, with the 3D graphics where things look cleaner, things look nicer, things look sharper. And if you look at two games on the N64 and on the PlayStation, put them side by side, 10 times out of 10, the, Super, the, the, the N64 version rather looks better than the PlayStation version. But, uh, well, I shouldn't say but yet, because the one other really good thing about cartridges was cartridges are basically just uh, flash memory. It's like sticking a USB drive into a into a computer. Okay. Uh, there's no load times. Well, yeah, that that's true. There is no load times with with cartridges. But that you know what? I didn't realize that it was like flash memory. Interesting. Yeah. Basically, all you're doing when you plug a cartridge into a system that takes cartridges is you're literally plugging a a memory module with a game on it into an expansion port. The cartridges are read only memory. They're they're basically like a, they're basically like a memory stick in a computer. Nice. That's interesting. Yeah. But they can't be written to. They can only be read from. So, yeah. Uh, kind of cool thing there. Now, without getting too into the dry kind of um, technical stuff, though, right? Uh, I want to just wrap that up real quick because with CDs, you could do something you couldn't do with the cartridges because of that additional storage space. And that was you could add CD quality audio and you could add, which they didn't even do here, by the way. Final Fantasy VII's audio is all MIDI because they didn't know that they could put CD audio <laughs> onto this thing. But you could also have full motion video, which for a living room console was a brand new concept. Like this had been around for a little while with like desktop PCs that had CD-ROMs because CD-ROMs had been around since like the early 90s. And there was like Wing Commander and stuff like that. And of course, there was even like the Sega CD. But that thing didn't hardly have any games. But now a full system that was completely CD-based, that was powerful, had 3D graphics, was doing things that we had never seen in the living room before up to that point. And what's cool about that, too, is we, uh, we discussed this, um, is that, you know, with FMV and full motion video and, and that kind of stuff, just the different camera angles that Final Fantasy introduced. And when you think about this as a whole, right... You think about it and and think about the game that you've been playing, your most recent game that you have, and you see these different angles and cutscenes and, and, like, beautiful graphics, right? But this was, if you take yourself back, this was really unheard of at the time. It was cutting edge, and we're talking about blocks. You know, we're talking yeah. about polygons, not pixels, and it was it, it, it just one of those things that still to this day has changed the entire face of an industry. We've never had games telling us stories like that before, at least not in the living room. Like, like there were definitely full motion video in games prior to that on DOS, but those were mostly, you know, like pre-recorded, very low res movies. You know, like Wing Commander had some... Yeah, that's the best example I could think of that had little movies that played 
but now this entire game was made in such a way you had different camera angles you had different animation for the characters on screen and you could for the first time uh, see uh, a cinematic approach to creating a video game and a, and a more Hollywood approach to telling a story so we're not just telling the story anymore just in text like we used to but now we have so many more ways to communicate with the player and camera angles movement the music can change the lighting can change the sort of way that a director would change things in a feature film to to uh, evoke the same kind of emotional response from the audience and that's the beauty of it too i mean just think of how trying to get gather my thoughts here think of how yeah. uh Yumatsu made that entire soundtrack midi but was still able to have impactful scenes and music that tugged at your heartstrings and look i mean that soundtrack still slaps harder than will smith at the oscars i mean it doesn't matter it's midi it's still fantastic Absolutely. It was one of the um, only, actually, fun fun fact about me, um, it was one of the only video game soundtracks that I owned on compact disc. I had the entire soundtrack on CD. I think it was like four different nice. discs. And it was the entire MIDI at, track one through the very end. And uh, that was that was fun. That was really cool. I enjoyed that a lot. That's cool. You know, so I mean, the, the music of Final Fantasy is by itself, you know, a massive uh, discussion because it's all so tremendous. And I still listen to Distant Worlds all the time. Uh, now, I wanted to kind of kind of talk a little bit about something we talked about before, how this game came to be. Uh, one thing that I wanted to touch on was, did you did you know, Jared, that this was planned to be a Super Nintendo game like way back at the beginning of its development? That was something I have never heard before. And I think, until now. I think they wanted to utilize the CD-ROM add-on for it. <laughs> okay, now, so then that makes sense. Now, also, here's another fun fact. I'm going to throw a little more trivia out there. Xenogears. What would eventually become Xenogears began as uh, an early concept for Final Fantasy VII. Interesting. But uh, it was it was too dark. It was too dark. Yeah. They said. Yeah. I so mean, I thought that was kind of I thought that was kind of a, a cool little factoid. Yeah. And, and oh, go ahead. T t t uh, tell me your thoughts. Well, I was. Don't I was let, just. Don't let me say, hijack the whole thing. <laughs> I'll right, hijack right. the whole conversation if you let me. <laughs> <laughs> I was just gonna say, you know, um, I I think a lot about back in those days, you know, back in the '90s and stuff, and just how media came across and. It, you know, right during those times, we had just gotten introduced to dial-up internet. Mm -hmm. um, we got introduced to a lot, just newer technology. Things kept getting better and better. And Sony introduces a PlayStation right during that time period. And I have to wonder if maybe did Sony... If Sony would have waited to release, right? If Sony would have waited for the tech to get a little bit better, 
would they be where they are today? Now, that's an entirely different conversation <laughs> altogether, but it's just a thought that I had because, you know, the 90s was just one of those weird times where it didn't want to be the 80s, <laughs> but it, it wasn't the 2000s either. It was just kind of awkward. Kind of think it was a time of teenagers, you know. Yeah, it, it was a time of rapid technological growth. Things were changing very, very fast. We were coming into the internet age for the first time. Home computers had just really begun to become a common thing within the last couple of years before the game came out. Uh, yeah, dial-up internet, broadband internet was not even a thing yet. So to put this in perspective, especially for the younger crowd, you know. When this game came out, you couldn't, like, just go on the internet and go look up information about it. No. Maybe if you were, like, at the library or at school, maybe you could. But if you were at home, it would take forever. You would have to sit there in front of your computer for, like, 10, 15 minutes just to look at a picture. <laughs> yeah. So it wasn't like it is today where we know everything about a game just by going on the internet and checking it out. So when we experienced this game for the first time, and like you were saying, experienced that beautiful chilling haunting introductory sequence with the the green the green orbs floating around and then you see the camera zoom and there's Aerith and she's you know by the broken pipe and then the camera pans out she's walking toward the camera the camera pans out to this to the center of Midgar and now you're seeing the loveless poster you're hearing and seeing the train coming by you're seeing all the people walking around and moving and this was absolute magic at the time nothing like that had ever been in a video game for most of us at least i don't think anything like that had been in a video game up to that point no not anywhere close to that not anywhere close and it's really interesting you know um how that kind of went and what i wanted to tell you brought up Aerith. um i wanted to bring up the characters of of Final Fantasy 7 real quickly because I mean you they had personalities right I mean they were they, they they just they had way more personality than say Final Fantasy 6 now yes Final Fantasy 6 is still one of the best games ever but I mean Cloud Tifa Barrett you know even Biggs Wedge Jesse these characters they all had a personality and i i struggle to find a game previous to this to final fantasy 7 that actually had that kind of feeling of of each character having an individual personality yeah not only could we now learn about these characters from what they were saying with the on-screen text and obviously the limitation of the on-screen text is is virtually the sky, right? At this point, we've got 700 megabytes to work with rather than eight. No, not even like two. Yeah. The last generation, you had about two megabytes to work with. Now you got about 700. And plus it's three disks. So that's like two gigs. You have like about two gigs to work with at this point. So text, forget about it. You could put an entire encyclopedia onto these disks. No problem. So... There are no limitations. There's nothing stopping them from telling a story in text. But now you have so much more technology that you can tell a story through the way that people move, the way they interact, the way that the camera pans out and zooms in. 
uh, and you can get to know the characters on a much more intimate level. Now on top of that, these character designs are iconic, and we all know that. Uh, and of course we have Nomura, Tetsuya Nomura to thank for that, who is now, I think, probably one of the most important people at Square Enix. And has become a director. He, he's, you know, the, the mind behind Kingdom Hearts. He's he's the person that made the game that Final Fantasy XV should have been. Uh, you've also got, you know, of course, you've also got now, because we're talking about the writing and the way the characters are developed that way, you've got uh, Nojima now, you know, writing. And, of course, Kitase directing. And this is kind of a dream team that creates these this world and these characters for us. And well, I in mean... In terms of the character designs, I mean, the character designs are iconic, I mean... You, you, yeah, I, I, I was you, gonna say. I think I Cloud gonna... and Sephiroth are pretty much synonymous with Final Fantasy at this point. Oh yes, I was gonna say uh, the '90s kind of was the Dream Team era. I mean, you had the literal Dream Team, and then you had a lot more Dream Teams as well. But before, <laughs> one of the things I had brought up earlier, and I'll tell you this story now. So after I had gotten the game, and I was working my way through Midgar and that kind of stuff. Um, my buddy was like, well, prepare for sadness. And I'm like, what's well, Final Fantasy? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I get it, sadness. But see, this is where it gets interesting because he had me absolutely 100% convinced that it was Tifa and not Aerith. Really? That's amazing. And when it happened, when that moment happened, I absolutely lost it and and i cried for the first time in a video game ever it was it was a truly breathtaking moment truly breathtaking moment it really was and you know that was something big that was huge i mean can you imagine playing games your entire life up to that point and getting such a scene and watching as Sephiroth descends from the heavens and stabs Aerith right through the chest and the materia falls and as soon as it hits the floor that music comes in and it's just raw powerful emotion and it affected you and to this day it affects you every time you see it you know it's coming and it still affects you I remember this game, uh, experiencing this scene uh, at my friend Steve's house because basically I first saw my friend Annie's house and I didn't get the game until Christmas because, you know, I asked for it. But um, I, I watched my friend Steve play the pretty much the entire game. Pretty much from start to finish. And, uh, yeah, so I remember this at his house, sitting in his, sitting in his basement, just the jaw dropping because... Like, she's dead. She's not, like, temporarily incapacitated. You don't find her in a cave later. She's dead. She died. She's gone. And and not only did Cloud fail in his mission to protect her, the, the, the one thing she asked him to do, but you feel like, like, you must have done something wrong. Where did I go wrong? Can I save her? Can I stop this from happening? Do I have to go reload my old save? Where did I mess up? And yeah, some attachment, and and there's definitely some attachment to the character that 
I'm, I'm speechless thinking about it because it's, the whole the whole experience ye- the whole experience with Aerith, right? Because Cloud obviously is meant to be the protagonist. You're supposed to kind of, you know, experience the game through him. And he's very stoic. He's, he's very difficult to read. He starts sort of opening up a little bit because of her. And she's fun and she's quirky and, you know, she's incredibly positive and optimistic and it's really hard not to get attached to this character. And they did an incredible, tremendous job in making Aerith a lovable character that you get attached to. And then you lose her, and it's like it's it's like a stab through your own heart. It's a heartbreaking moment. Absolutely. It's a gut punch like no other. And really, that moment really set the table. Because you have to think, what is the very next thing that happens right you fight Genova and if most people were like me you were bawling your eyes out and you were pissed man did you feel like you were the one slashing Genova you were the one shooting Genova or whoever whatever character you had you felt like you were the one striking slashing punching shooting whatever it may be and then it just kind of moves on and the story continues and you're forced and this is where I love how they did this because after they lay her to rest and she sinks to the bottom you're you're forced to continue on you feel what Cloud is feeling that should I continue should I not continue and you feel that like <laughs> drive and how many video games have captured that feeling in your lifetime i can't think of many off the top of my head not many i've seen a few movies that really emotionally impacted me when you get attached to a character and invested in them and they die I mean, obviously there are other things that'll happen too, but it's the death of a beloved character is always, if it's done well, is always a very emotional moment. And I had never seen that in a video game up until this point. Exactly. Exactly. And just absolute, oh man, that was, that was something. And honestly, I think that was probably the biggest moment in the three PlayStation games that they released i i can't yeah. think of a moment in eight that did it i can't think Nothing of a moment gonna, yeah i can't think of a Nothing moment in that. nine that did it yeah it just nothing was gonna top that yeah it, it was one of those things and and just think about how angry you were at sephiroth and how how satisfying it was to finally hear that wonderful musical piece one winged angel (laughs) and it is time it is time to finish this yeah it's incredible build up and that's one of the elements you need to tell a good story you need to have a build up every story has to have you know you have your protagonist you have your antagonist and you have your conflict and the conflict is what drives the narrative so in this in this case we have the conflict between cloud and sephiroth we have that 
amazing climax of, you know, have, seeing him uh, kill Aerith. And it makes the player want to see Sephiroth get taken down. And not only do you get to see him get taken down, but you get to be the one to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, going from Final Fantasy VII and moving into Final Fantasy VIII, you know, it had a it had a big name to live up to. Yeah. And yeah. I have... Uh, you and I have a very unpopular opinion is that Final Fantasy 8 is a good game. I think it's an excellent game. I think Final Fantasy 8 is wonderful. I uh, enjoy it a lot. Uh it's think, one of one of my uh, top 5, go ahead. definitely top I was going to say one of my top 5 uh in the series all all yeah. all together, definitely. It's in that conversation. Maybe even like top a, three. Yeah, I feel like a lot of people disliked eight just because it was so different from seven. I mean, seven is still the most successful game ever in the Final Fantasy franchise. It's sold it's sold over twelve million units. Of course, there's some people like me who have purchased it several times on multiple platforms, but you know, still twelve million units is is definitely a massively successful game. Uh, yeah, and and that's why it's been getting the remake treatment and it's getting mm -hmm. all this, you know, Advent Children, all these spin-off games such as um oh now I can't think of the name of it. Uh, uh <laughs> Dirge the, of Cerberus. Dirge and, of Cerberus. Uh, what's the that one, one that with, I don't like but that you really like? Yeah, the one with Zach. That's the one I'm trying to remember. Um That's so weird I'm drawing a blank on it too. Anyway That's that ridiculous. Game. That's ridiculous. I can't believe I can't remember the name of the game right now it's it's escaping me but they've had all these spin-offs yeah. and that's how successful final fantasy 7 was i never liked all that i never liked i never liked the whole universe of final fantasy 7 thing i feel like the story that needed to be told had already been told advent children i enjoyed a lot advent children complete i really yeah. really enjoyed that all right Advent children was kind of cool it was it was pretty cool it's definitely trying to watch it now though like it was corny it was it was pretty corny it, it, it kind of was, was. Uh, the one disappointment i had was how they handled omni slash i did not enjoy that it it really didn't come across as omni slash to me it was also kind of crazy how they gave cloud like a motorcycle and a sword that it, like splits into 75 different swords and like it's never explained like how he gets any of this stuff um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's been a long time. I could be remembering things. I I I last watched this movie probably about ten years ago, so I, I probably am remembering some stuff wrong. But you know, you get the yeah. It, 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 he would have been better off. They would have been better off giving him the crystal uh, Ultima weapon. But yeah. Regardless of that, <laughs> regardless of that. So yeah, Final Fantasy VIII is great. <laughs> and if you don't think so, it's because you're an uncultured plebeian. You know, uh, the thing about Final Fantasy VIII, and this is... Repugnant uh, basement dweller. <laughs> this is the uh, this is the, the, the biggest things that I hear about the game. It's the junction system. I, right. I don't understand the magic it. system. It's such a grind. And then the monsters level up when you level up, so it's supposed to be a low-level run. How am I supposed to get AP for my uh, junctions or for my GFs to learn the abilities that I need without 
over-leveling myself. Listen, it was a different system. Yes. If the junction system probably took me a good while to figure out, but once I finally had it figured out, I know I could break the game within the first five hours of gameplay. I mean, the game being super breakable probably isn't a good selling point. I mean, let's be honest, all the Final Fantasy games are very breakable because they're all kind of broken and there's always kind of little things that I think they release these games and they just hope that no one figures out. But of course, it's been long enough that it's all been figured out. Uh, but the, the really the, the monsters level up with you, like that's that's a criticism. That's like most games, like most RPGs that are not Final Fantasy do that. Like a lot of games have done that for a very long time. The whole point of that is so that you don't just grind yourself to overlevel. That's the the only that's the whole reason for that. So you can't just do what you could do in every other Final Fantasy game up to that point and walk around in a circle and grind levels forever and outlevel all the content. Yeah, and it I liked that uh, as a as a thing, and we're missing something very very important that I wanted to bring up here. Um. And that is the minigames aspect of Final Fantasy, especially in Gold Saucer, Triple mm -hmm. Triad. In um, 9, they had cards, jump rope, races, that kind of stuff. Yeah. I um, mean, 7 was amazing for the minigames. Because of Final Fantasy 7, every single JRPG on the PlayStation like had to have minigames. They would shoehorn them into everything. Like, and there were so many, like, in Legend of Lagaya, there was that, like, lousy dancing game, and there was, like, the dumb pig race game in Legend of Dragoon. They would, like, shoehorn them in there, because after Final Fantasy VII, you had to have minigames, because they were all so fun. The motorcycle game was so much fun. Submarine. The submarine game was, was a lot of fun. The Mog. It was very enjoyable. Yeah, the, the Mog, Mog House wasn't that fun. That wasn't that fun. But they, it... Yeah, the little, the little dopey fighting game in there. It was worth it was worth though doing the Mog game because you got a decent amount of GP, and it, yes, and real talk, real talk. I'm gonna be straight up here. I did not realize how easy it was to get G GP in Gold Saucer by Chocobo racing, and the thing of it yes. was was before I knew that. I would grind out hundreds of GP by just playing the same games over and Oof. over and over again just to get GP. And I'm like, there's something I'm missing here. And then I started working on the Chocobo side quest to right. get the gold Chocobo and the legendary Knights of the Round and right. realized, hey, why didn't I think of this before? Did you know that if you don't use Knights of the Round against the final form of Genova, that Sephiroth becomes easier? Interesting. I just usually use my highest level magic spells and um, my limit breaks for that fight against Genova Death or whatever it was. I can't remember which. If you use form. Knights of the Round... Uh, 
uh, Sephiroth gets like something like an extra 100,000 hit points or something like that. I mean, it makes sense. They had to, they yeah. probably they probably didn't want you to cheese the boss, the final boss. I mean, y- you yeah. basically get Knights of the Round just to survive against Ruby and Emerald. So they had yeah. to they had to probably have a modifier in there just in case so you wouldn't cheese the final boss. Which is another reason why not being able to overlevel the content in eight was in my opinion a good thing yeah and it really was and what was nice about that too is for your higher level magic to junction the higher the level the monster the easier it was to draw rarer spells that's why it was so nice to have uh cactar um in that game because he came with level or was it tonberry it was either Cactar or Tonberry where you could level up. I think it was Tonberry. Uh, you could level up the enemies. Or you could level them down. Mm-hmm. There's always so many cool little tricks like that in these games. And 8 had probably the most... I mean, they, they always make these systems, like the Junction system. They always make this stuff to be out to be like way more complicated than it actually is. It's really not that complicated. You just, whatever stat you want, your person... To have the highest one of, you junction whichever spell gives you the highest number. It's not that it's not that diff- It's not that tricky. And then just you know, don't have that character cast that spell. It, it's it's not it's not complicated like at all. It's really not. It's not. And, and yeah, and then you get the oh, it's it's tedious to draw spells. I didn't last time I played through this game was a couple of years ago, and I didn't find it tedious at all to draw spells. In fact, I had like full stock of spells to where like. I had to I had to burn spells to like get rid of them so I could make room for more spells. For more spells, yeah, exactly. And that's um another thing about the mini game in Final Fantasy VIII Triple Triad, which in my opinion is the best mini game Final Fantasy has ever had. Yeah. It's so much fun to it's play. Excellent. It is so much fun to learn. It is a mm-hmm. pain in the butt to get the rules the way you want them because of the RNG. But mm. but if you can manage to do that, your success, man, you can card mod things and, and become super, super strong where you don't even have to think about a boss until the final dungeon, really. Yeah, people like do min-max runs all the time where they complete the game at level one. Yeah. Oh, I, by the way, last time I played it, I played it on an emulator, and I cheated the card game massively. I played it on an emulator, and I would just, like, if I lost a card that I didn't want to lose, reload I would just reload the save state. So I was save state cheesing last time I played. But, you know, I, I mean, it's a game I played 100 times, and uh, I was just playing, you know, for fun, so whatever. Well, in the in the remastered edition on Xbox, and I think that's available on PlayStation as well as Steam, um, the remastered edition, you can exit the game and reload your save. So you obviously, in your case, you'd be right by the character that you were playing against. But if you found a save point before you played a game, 
and you lost, all you had to do was go into the menu and hit exit. It would take you right back to the title screen, and then you could just reload your save. So that's how I ended up getting a Deus card, because that's probably, in my opinion, one of the hardest card rare cards to get in the game. Okay, why is that remaster not in widescreen? Like, what what is up with that? Yeah. Why I, is it not widescreen? That makes I, no sense to me. No, it... it and if and the thing is is if they wouldn't have you know they didn't widescreen it so why don't they put like a uh, a selectable background yeah, along the sides put a, put a, a bezel like a, yeah because I can play that on on RetroArch right now and I can make it widescreen or I can put a bezel around it and that, yeah and, and and that's and that's free right I, I have the game like I have the game I'm not stealing it so I mean and then I. I play it in re- retro art like why why so what why is the, the the version that you have to buy digitally for what what do they want 30 bucks for that and you don't even have anything to fill in the black stupid it's stupid yeah it, it was one of those things that i didn't appreciate about it but again it wasn't the end of the world for me um with that i mean look i mean look at least when renoa tells squall he's the best looking guy in the room his face doesn't look like just a mess of pixels anymore right i guess that's an improvement right yeah that's something i always thought was kind of funny like that game they they went kind of the opposite direction in that one right because in seven you had these kind of chibi characters that looked like like legos basically yeah yep but then in eight they had these kind of like very I, i don't say very human looking but much more human looking character models yeah. And the way they played with the production of the game, it had a very weird feel, I thought, especially in the beginning. Because, like, you talked before about, like, camera angles and stuff, but they did weird stuff here where, like, the camera angle would change during a story sequence. Like, in the beginning when you're talking to Quistus in the hallway, Squall and Quistus in the hallway, but, like, they're walking toward the camera and having a conversation, and you actually are controlling Squall while that's happening. It's a very weird feel. That might have been some. That might have been one thing that kind of threw people off in the beginning too. Yeah, and very possible. But let's let's talk about something real quick. Let's talk about something real quick here. Squall, as a character. Let's talk about Squall. He is. Let's so, talk about Eddie Furlong. He is so misunderstood. Oh, he is so yeah. misunderstood. Yeah. Yeah. Did you know that he's based on Eddie Ed, Edward Furlong, the actor who was in T Two Judgment Day? Did you know that? That's the his character model was based on that. Really, I did much not. more of Nomura, much more of Nomura's style showing in this one, by the way. So, so yeah, so Squall, so misunderstood, so misunderstood. What's the main thing you always hear people saying about Squall? You hear them saying, "Oh, I don't like Squall. He's so emo. He is like the exact opposite of emo. To he's, not, he's, it, he's to an extreme, really, because it, it it's um." It's like he built a, a, a wall and then and then cemented it and then reinforced it with steel and then reinforced it with more steel and then put up another wall. And I mean, essentially, He's very 90s. he he walled himself off from feeling yes. anything at all. And if you're yes. emo, you live and die on emotion. Yes. He's the exact opposite of that. He's not whiny. He never whines in the game. All he ever really does is is say, I don't care. 
he complains a little about like adults like adults are stupid and things like that but you know who he reminds me of the character he most reminds me of is randall from clerks that's who squall reminds me of holy you know what i never thought of that everything seems stupid to me yeah that's the kind of character he is he's very cynical the whole game really is very cynical yeah. It's, it's definitely taking this sort of view of the world and looking at things through the eyes of, of a teenager who is who has been through some stuff and had a lot of responsibility thrust upon him, and is and he's trying to deal with all of that. It's uh, a very so he's, jaded. He's not, yeah, exactly. A very jaded so worldview. His whole character arc is based on him overcoming that sort of, like you said, walled-off uh, way of, of thinking about things. He's got a terrible case of imposter syndrome. And I think a lot of us can identify with that. If you don't know what imposter syndrome is, think about, have you ever been thinking how, oh my God, my partner is one day going to realize that I am nowhere near as good as they think I am and they're going to leave. Or my employer one day is going to realize I am not good at the job that they hired me to do and they're going to fire me. That's imposter syndrome. Like, I'm not actually good at things. I'm just tricking everyone into thinking I am. So that's what Squall is doing the whole game. He's just, he's, why, why do people keep giving me responsibility? I'm not a good leader. I'm not a good soldier. I'm not a good friend. And the whole character arc is him coming to terms with the fact that he's being given opportunities and he's being given uh, the acceptance and love and friendship of other people, not because he somehow tricked them or because they're stupid, but because he is genuinely a capable person and he doesn't give himself enough credit for what he actually is. And when the game ends, you know, the the final resolution of his character arc is he's finally allowed himself to accept his role. Yeah, I I would I would say it's still probably uh, the strangest ending to a Final Fantasy game that I've ever experienced. Well, I mean, the whole premise was kind of bizarre. Like Ultimacia's ultimate plan was to compress time. That doesn't even make sense. Uh, like, what does that even mean? Like, what time compression? Like, what even is that? And I guess maybe that's kind of part of it. Maybe you're supposed to sort of ponder like, what is time compression? What happens if you take all of time and compress it into a single what then? Like, if you're compressing time, then, like, a second, does a second really exist anymore? Is everything compressed into a single second? If all things are happening at all times, are there, like, just thousands of timelines, but they're all pushed into the same timeline? Is it, like, is it like merging the multiverses? Like, what exactly is time compression? It's never explained. There's a little bit of wacky stuff at the end where I guess some elements of time begin blending into each other. And I don't know. I, I'm spinning my wheels because maybe it's not, maybe it is something we're not supposed to be able to fathom or understand. It's supposed to be beyond the capacity of a human being to understand it. And that's why it's such a terrifying uh, prospect. I don't know. Yeah, it, it it's one of those things um, that has always eluded me but I never really took the time to stop and think about it. I, I Every time I see the ending after I play the game, I'm just like, eh, you know, that's weird, and then move so, on. So, so Squall's great, right? We talked about Squall. Squall's great. If you still don't like Squall, then 
I don't know what to tell you. Squall's great, and if you don't like him, you're wrong. But um, the rest of the cast is kind of meh. I would and agree. I think one of think one of the things that really kind of grinds my gears with this one is that there's some anime tropes in there, like like every woman in the cast is like relentlessly throwing themselves at Squall the entire time, which is such such a such like a shonen anime trope. Always like the protagonist, no matter what kind of guy he is, just constantly has women throwing themselves at him all the time. Uh, and that's that's and and that kind of devalues the characters as well. Like Quistus, who's supposed to be like an authority figure to him, is following him around with puppy dog eyes, and then Renoa like barely exists outside of her relationships to the men in the story. Like she's like an anti-feminist icon. She's Ophelia from uh, Hamlet. She just has no, she has, she has no existence, you know, apart from how she relates to her father to cypher to squall she has no identity i have no idea who this woman is like i can look at final fantasy 7 and i can say okay Aerith, she's fun she's quirky she's got a lot of emotional scars that she's covering up i uh, i was gonna uh, say uh, tifa's got a great big pair of personality well, Tifa is very vulnerable. <laughs> Tifa is, uh, a, a, apart from apart from basically being, uh, you know, kind of the 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 perfect woman in video game form. I mean, she she she's got dark hair. She's got long legs. She's got the the rest of her. Um, but she's also very vulnerable. She's very guarded. She is uh, extremely caring and nurturing. And these are qualities that I don't, I can't identify any qualities in Renoa. I can't identify any qualities in Inquistus. Uh, in fact, that kind of brings me to like the Final Fantasy, Final Fantasy VII remake, because they added, they they made, they expanded the character of Jessie, and her entire personality and the only quality she has is that she's horny. Literally the only thing about Jessie that stands out at all is that she's horny. She's nothing else. She's not smart. She's not brave. She's not compassionate. She's just horny. And that, I hate that. That bothers me. <laughs> yeah. So, and, yeah, so. And that that was. Give, 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 give these characters character. You know, develop them. Give us something. Something. But, see, therein lies where it gets real fascinating. Because in Final Fantasy IX they definitely gave the characters personalities in my opinion yes and they gave us they gave us another beautiful dark-haired girl in in garnet and garnet in my opinion i think in final fantasy 9 and there's so much more to talk about here as well in final fantasy 9 that is a wonderful game it is or at least was at one point sakaguchi's favorite final fantasy game um and this one, Final Fantasy IX, uh, directed by Hiroyuki Ito, the first time we see Hiroyuki Ito being the director of a Final Fantasy title. Uh, but I think, really, that Garnet is much more of a protagonist in the story than Zidane is. And the kind of game that it is, being, you know, a JRPG, I know that, like, you always want to go for the young man protagonist because it's really very deeply rooted in the same kind of storytelling as Shonen Anime was. And I'm going to come back to that Shonen anime point because that's just the what things were like at the time. All of these Japanese RPGs were all had a lot in common with anime and manga tropes. But in this one, when you look really closely at Dagger or Garnet, her story, and if you compare that to the monomyth, 
her story eclipses very, very well with the monomyth. And if you're not familiar with the monomyth, this is a, a storytelling kind of template, um, also called the hero's journey. And pretty much any story that has a hero going on a journey fits into the monomyth. Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, um, it all falls into that that monomyth. And here, Garnet goes through every step of that. There is a call to action, there's a crossing of a barrier, um, and then there is a boon at the end where you receive your heart's desire after fulfilling your quest. There's a spiritual guide who assists, you, assists her on her journey in Steiner. Um, there is a, uh, a sacrifice that has to be made. There is a trial that has to, has to be overcome where she has to face off against her own mother as a villain. So she completely goes through the hero's journey. Absolutely. I don't feel like Sedan does that. I no. don't feel like Sedan does that. No, and and you know, I, I thinking about the times that I've played Final Fantasy IX and I think about Zidane as a character, it makes me think that the story in and of itself, yes, you're introduced to Zidane first, but it's like you're introduced to the supporting cast before the may, the lead comes around. That's true, and it's it's so hard to not think back to the beginning of the game and when you start the game you're not playing as Adon, you're playing as Vivi and Vivi is amazing like you, how do you not love Vivi right away as soon as you start playing the game he's so innocent and he just kind of appears right and I don't think in the beginning of the game even Vivi really knows about where he came from and he doesn't really even seem to think about it or question it until later in the game yeah but he he just kind of it, it, you know the opening scene you're in Alexandria and you're going to see a play and you yeah. start off as Vivi and you're just there you're in Alexandria and it kind of it always made me wonder because you know he talks a lot about his grandpa and things like that what drove him what was the motivation to go to Alexandria? It couldn't have just been, oh, there's a play that I want to go see, so I got to go to Alexandria. You know what I mean? What, yeah. what Was he searching? You know, I've always asked myself that question. Was it Was it that he was searching for who he truly was? And when he got to Alexandria, he realized, oh, there's a play. Let's t- it's time to relax a little bit from my adventures so far and go see this uh, show. There's so much to talk about with Vivi because his entire character arc is a quest for identity. He's trying to find himself. He's trying to figure out who he is. And for him, it's a lot more transparent than the rest of the cast. But everybody in the cast is doing the same thing. They're all trying to find out who they are. They all, they're all having a little bit of an identity crisis. You know, I mean, we, I talked before about how, like, in Final Fantasy, Final Fantasy VII Remake, that Jessie's only personality trait is that she's horny. And Zidane's kind of the same thing. The difference being Zidane's a teenage boy, and you expect that to a degree. But as the story progresses, you find that Zidane is so incredibly good. Like, he has goodness so deeply etched into the core of his heart that even when his own brother tries to kill him, for the entire game, 
and he has the opportunity to leave Kuja to die, he absolutely will not do it because he just is too good. To him, Kuja being his brother is way more important than Kuja trying to kill him. And uh, I mean, Dagger's entire arc is about is about breaking away from the chains of the responsibilities that she has as a princess and trying to find a life free of that. And again, going back to the hero's journey for her becomes eventually the acceptance of that responsibility and her own freedom and her mastery of two worlds. So that's a huge theme in this game. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and I know how you brought up that it was, uh, did you say Katase's favorite? game uh sakaguchi's sakaguchi's favorite the Uh, the the father of the father of the franchise the father of the series yuimatsu also has said that nine was his musical masterpiece so there's that as well and i thought that was actually really cool because when you think about it melodies of life is probably Mm -hmm. one of my favorite favorite world map themes in an rpg it just it's something special there's a lot of throwbacks in here too and 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 the soundtrack reminds me of that because you know like when you go into the volcano you have the very similar music to ff1 and a lot of sequences are like that Uh, it just reminds me of how many throwbacks there are and a couple of things that i really loved about this game when it came out because this one was not really that well received this one was kind of like i think even i think this one even was less well received than eight uh if i remember correctly uh, it was also released, like, the PS2, I think, was already out by the time this game came out. But that's a whole other conversation. Uh, so, this game has so many throwbacks, and I loved how they, they brought the crystal motif back. So, there's crystals again, and that becomes more of an important idea. And uh, you have character classes, jobs again, which you didn't really have in 7 and 8. And finally, you have four characters in the group at a time again, where... You know, uh, seven and eight, you only had three, and I always felt like that was so lopsided because you didn't really have, you know, your normal build out that you would expect to have, where you would have your kind of damage sponge person, and then you would have somebody who does a lot of physical attack damage, somebody who does a lot of magic attack damage, and then somebody who protects and heals the party. Now you finally have that back in this game. Uh, and that was fantastic for me because I missed that so much with seven and eight. It was a very welcome change to kind of go back to that older sort of formula. You know what I was going to ask you, and, I, and I, I'm sure our listeners would be interested in hearing this as well. Um, myself, with Final Fantasy IX, I have never quite figured out Amaranth. Am, Amaranth? Am, Armornath? I can't remember. Amaranth. Amaranth. Yeah. yeah, I can't figure out his story, his motivation. Why he was hired to kill and he mm-hmm. it was it that he just respects strength and he chose a side that he thought was the stronger side i i don't i he he's just kind of appears and then he's like oh i'll join you yeah he wasn't he wasn't um yeah he wasn't written well I, I could say a lot of great things about this game but and a lot of people don't like the character of amaranth and i don't blame them because he wasn't written very well I think what it really comes down to for him is, yes, he admires strength, and that's the reason why he first decides to go as Zidane, but I think it's something more than that, right? Because for Amaranth, 
he had to have some other reason why he felt Zidane was special, right? And I because Zidane is this this hero who has so much goodness, and I think that Amarant was attracted to that goodness. Um, and there are some later on some of the some of the active time events, some of the ATEs, right? There's one where 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 I think um, I think it's Garnet talking to Amarant about you know why, like why are you here like why why and they're talking about Zidane and why Amarant why they chose to follow him so maybe it wasn't Garnet it would have been somebody else but they were talking about why they chose to follow him ah it was Fran no Freya rather Freya Fran's the bunny from Twelve Freya and Amarant talking about why they chose to follow Zidane. And basically their reasoning kind of boils down to the same thing. Um, Amarant started following him because he was just impressed by how how unexpectedly strong Zidane was. He was able to beat him in a fight, which he didn't think by looking at him would be possible. But on top of that, everything he's seen Zidane do since that time has inspired him to be a better person. And wasn't there a scene... Uh, an ATE in um, oh I can't think of the town name but the by at the uh, auction house where he was yes. trying to yes there trying are a lot to of them. make amends for his past yeah by that time in the game yeah I'm I'm, I'm drawing a blank too it, it was the last played it but uh, yeah he. Uh, he definitely was inspired by Zidane to to do better and to be better. So in the beginning, I think it was almost more of a, if you can't beat him, join him sort of a scenario. Or maybe he was concerned that the people who hired him would kill him if he didn't get the job done, so he may as well join up with Zidane. That would be a better explanation. Uh, but, you know, as the story progresses, it's because he is becoming a better person because of his association with somebody who is so ridiculously good. That he's an inspiration to the people that that travel, and you know, and there's oh, like, go ahead. Uh, I, 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 it's hard to get into every single character arc because they're, but they're all so great. I know Steiner is another character that I think is not as well loved as he deserves to be, because Steiner starts the game out with like these blinders on, and all he cares about is like his duty, and he's kind of like a he's kind of like a, a satire. He's he is a a parody of a knight or a samurai you know somebody who is super because it's a japanese game after all he is somebody who is so duty bound and so concerned about you know uh his value being directly associated to his ability to perform his duty that he's completely blind to the moral or ethical uh ramifications of the things he chooses to do or not do and his whole character arc is him coming to terms with the fact that your duty is not always the right thing to do. Sometimes the right thing to do means breaking a rule or not doing what you're told. Right, right. And I was going to say, because we're talking about the characters here, one of the one of the uh, the most memorable characters or set of characters in this uh, in this title are the Black Waltz. I just loved mm-hmm. how they were as characters black waltz man those they were so fun to fight they were so fun as characters just it was it was great it was great it was one of those i just wanted to bring up black waltz and the black waltz one two and three and just the 
airship chase. Oh, there's so much you could say about this yeah. game. I love the imagination of taking that original design of the Black Mage from the original Final Fantasy and building all this lore around that appearance. Because it really was a bizarre appearance in the original Final Fantasy that the Black Mage had like no face, just eyes peeking out of the darkness. And there was no lore behind it, it just kind of was. It was cool seeing that built up into something much bigger than what it was. And, and that's kind of, I guess that's kind of a good segue into what I feel is the most important uh, element of this game is the fairy tale feel of the game. And that's what they were going for when they created it. They wanted a fairy tale feel. And like the last time I played this was maybe like, I want to say like two years ago, a year or two ago, I played it and I was. It had been long enough since the last time I experienced the game that I was able to be captivated by the magic of this game all over again. This game world is really magical. And once you start the game, when you're when you're in Alexandria for the first time, it's inescapable. That feeling of wonder and magic, it really is like a fairy tale. It's so wonderful. It's such a wonderful game world. It is. I absolutely fell, I, 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 I absolutely fell in love with it all over again. It's just... The, the 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 fantasy medieval setting the princess princesses and magic and the way it's all presented it's so hard for me to to put it into words right now uh it's it's a wonderful experience to 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 be in this game and i love the it's a beautiful i place. love the callbacks to final fantasy one where they have the yeah. uh the four super bosses that were also like the lich mm -hmm. the kraken the fiends yeah. yeah yeah release the kraken oh did you know that um this game was inspired by the movie the dark crystal that is the first time i've heard that yeah it's a cool little factoid that was one of the things that that uh inspired and influenced this game was the movie the dark crystal which i didn't actually watch until i was already an adult <laughs> uh yeah, so that's kind of a cool little piece of That was the same there. thing with me and Labyrinth. Yeah. I, uh... Sakaguchi said he wanted to, to make... Sorry to interrupt there. I'll let you finish that thought. <clears throat> I'm going to let you finish. But uh, the goal... Sakaguchi said the goal of the game was to make a make a, a world that a child might dream up. Yeah. And that's just such a, such a beautiful thought and such a wonderful idea. And I think about it because, you know, I have my son. He's almost six. And I think about it, I'm like, yeah, this sort of is the kind of thing that a little kid, if you give him some time and say, hey, you know, let's create something. Okay, well, where's where's our story taking place? How about a castle? Okay, and and who's and who's who's there? Uh, well, there's a man, um, and he has a tail. You know, it just it seems like something that a little kid would come up with. Absolutely. Now you were now you were you were saying about labyrinth. The labyrinth. Yes, um, I watched that as an adult. I you know I just didn't. I wasn't too aware of it uh, when I was younger. And uh, so that was one of those films that I didn't see until I was an adult. And, you know, a lot of people put Labyrinth and Dark Crystal kind of in the same category. So I just, yeah. yeah. But yes, it uh, it was <laughs> the world of... You remind me of the, the babe. The world of Final Fantasy. The babe with the power. The, the world of Final <laughs> Fantasy IX. It, it, from the mist to the airships, yes. to the village of mages, to the chocobos. And, and let's, you know, one of the things about Final Fantasy IX that I did 
because I wanted to. It was one of the the biggest side quests in the game. It was the uh, Chocobo treasure hunt. Um, man, yes. I tell you that one. I must have spent hours upon hours upon hours digging to find those treasure charts or <laughs> treasure stones or whatever it might be. Right. And in the end, it was worth it because I got a chance to fight Uzma. So I didn't really bother with that when I originally played the game. I didn't really bother with it. When I played it a couple of years back, uh, I was playing it on Steam, which is like a port of the mobile version, but like there's mods to make it make it more like the original. But um, I played it on Steam, and it has a fast-forward feature, which was very useful <laughs> for the Chocobo Hot and Cold. The game. only issue, because I have it on Xbox, uh, I have it on my Xbox, and the only right. issue I ran into with that fast-forward button was that your timer runs just as fast as everything else does. Mm -hmm. So you, it helps to a point. All right, it just it just helped me move around move around faster. Yeah, and, it, and faster. it did that. So with myself, but um, you know, trying to find the yeah man, oh, that was a pain in the butt. But it was so worth it because yeah. because I never, you got to the sky I, and you could fight Uzma yeah. and you got um, Zidane's ultimate weapon and it was it it was fun. It, it was fun. Yeah, I never beat Ozma because to make Ozma beatable, you have to finish the creature's side quest, which is not finishable on my save file because somehow some kind of glitch occurred where one of the creatures just never spawns. Nice. That's going to be fun. Yeah, because he's... Like, I tried for hours upon hours upon hours to get that last creature to spawn, and it just wouldn't happen. And I went back to every location... And I got I, I took a I made a checklist and I checked off every one <laughs> to make sure I got them all and the last one just would not ever show up so some kind of bug or glitch or broken thing I, I ended know. up uh, I ended up getting all of Quinna's blue ma magic spells um, that was one of the side quests nice. that I did um, completed the frog catching side quest um, did that that's it, another really one. Actually, that wasn't, that although, wasn't too bad. Although, if you leave one male and one female frog and, and don't catch them all, then they respawn at a faster rate. Yes, that, that's right. Yes, that is true. Yeah, and the Tetramaster game, you know, was the other big mini game in there, and uh, that one was fun, but not as it's not as good. As no, it, and I struggled actually. Optional. I, though, I struggled nice. with learning Final Fantasy IX's card game. Uh, Tetra Master. I just I couldn't. I got I pretty good really at it. Figure out uh, how the the damage worked, or how you know. I mean, obviously, it, it's what cards you have in your deck and how you how you play them. Just, same yeah. thing with it's the arrows. Same thing with Triple Triad. But I found Triple Triad so much easier to understand because they had the numbers in yeah. in the top corner, or they had the four numbers. And then all you had to do was have a higher number than your opponent. Yeah, Tetra Master was kind of almost like... I feel like Triple Triad was a little bit more like a Magic the Gathering or even like D&D &D with cards kind of a situation where you had stats you had to worry about and damage and defense 
in a matter of speaking. Whereas Tetra Master was almost more like chess. Like, you didn't really have attack and defense value so much. There was no, this card is worth more than this other card. It was really just all about placement and having a, some idea of what to expect. So, you know, you would obviously try your very best to keep your, your sides of your card that don't have an arrow pointed toward the border or pointed toward another card that's already been played. And then try to anticipate what the opponent has or doesn't have in their deck. Which is, you know, obviously very hard to do, but if you've played it a, a few times, you know, you'll kind of learn who has what cards and then have an understanding of, of where it's safe and smart exactly. to play your cards. Exactly. So, yeah. there is so much that we have yet to cover in this series that we could cover, but realistically speaking, you folks, if you're a fan of Final Fantasy, you know, you know exactly these games are special these these three games yeah, i mean we, we could be here all night talking about we could go so there there are so many things that i like wrote down that i wanted to talk about that we absolutely and that's what makes it tough sometimes because you want to present you know the best possible for you folks and then you just kind of get on a line and you keep going and then the next thing you know it's like oh so little insight into the show there but uh yeah so stay tuned for us or with us for next episode which is going to be final fantasy 10 and beyond and how much wine titus has <laughs> but anyway i wanted to wrap things up and i wanted to just kind of talk real briefly about uh, the weather forecast. Now you're asking yourself, what are you talking about? Well, we're talking about Final Fantasy. We're talking about Cloud. We're talking about Squall. We're talking about... <laughs> Listen, <clears throat> that's one of the things that Final Fantasy has done, especially with the newer games, that I think there's even a rain in there. There's a lightning. I mean, it, it yep, has always... Think, yeah. It, for some reason, they have decided to to make their characters based upon a weather phenomenon, and it was one of those small little trivia facts that I just <laughs> found interesting. So, so are you saying there's like a forty percent chance of Zidane because rumors abound of a Final Fantasy IX yes. remake? You know, and if they butcher and if they butcher that, and they, here's another thing I'm gonna get beat up for. If they butcher that the way they butchered 7, I know people are going to come after me for this, but I'm sorry, man. I played Final Fantasy VII Remake, and I couldn't get through. I couldn't get past, like, the Honey Bee part. It, like, I don't I don't like it. I don't like the game. It's it's I don't like it. So if they did to 9 what they did to 7, I am not going to like it. <laughs> I think... More than anything, and, and the rumors that I've seen floating around about it, it's more that they're going to sharpen the graphics and make them more modern-looking. They're not really going to change the Good. story or the characters. Basically, what they're going to do is retouch the artwork and make it like a mod. I think there's a mod out there right now that essentially uh, essentially um, makes Final Fantasy IX look like it was developed in, like, 2015 2016 something like that 
that's how I played it. Yeah, I played it with the Mulgrew. <laughs> Absolutely mod. gorgeous, and I think that's what Square is intending on doing with it. Um, okay, that's okay. As long as they don't make like a supporting character and turn her into like a, a walking pile of horny, then well, I'm yeah, and okay I mean the only thing, and don't add like, d- don't don't add like like a teenage schoolyard rival for the protagonist to fight for no reason also yeah also don't do that yeah i hear you there and don't turn don't turn tantalus into like a worldwide organization with chapters all over the planet and all the other bad yeah. things they did they did a lot of bad things yeah i mean i think so. the only look what they did to my boy they massacred my boy the you know the um with nine though i think the one thing that i like is just a brief and i'm not talking about hours upon hours upon hours of gameplay but a brief <laughs> section that really defines amaranth better than what they initially did hmm. i think that he deserves it because as a character i really liked using him because of his claws he, he's, he's, a he's a fighter and it, it was he was such a benefit to the party. His, uh, his special ability yeah. kind of sucks. I think he had a couple of really good ones. Oh, um, his hair, by the way, is modeled after a plant called the amaranth, the the, uh, the amaranth coral, or the coral amaranth. That's why he's called amaranth. He looks like a coral amaranth. Yeah, plant I saw that. That was actually really cool. Um, with oh, and blank from Tantalus is. I have a whole thing about Blank, too, from Tantalus. If y'all notice that he has, like, he has stitches all over him. So I'm not going to do the whole thing. It's a whole thing. But if you Google Tantalus and look up the myth that has to do with Tantalus and and and, and look at Blank, and then you can, you'll, you guys will be able to figure it out. I don't want to sit there and talk about that because it's already an hour and a half, and we're going to wind up with a two-hour show of me talking about you know, references to Greek mythology and Final Fantasy, and that's that's a college lecture. You, you got to pay to be bored. You got to you got to you got you got to pay me if you want me if you want me to bore you that much. Pay me and I'll talk. Yeah. <laughs> Little Zelda reference going back to the beginning there. I don't, I don't get really boring, unless I'm getting a check. That's true. That's true. So anyway, you want you want li- literary analysis of the Final Fantasy games? <laughs> Write me a check. <laughs> And I want to thank you for joining us today on the Console Kingdom podcast and our Final Fantasy retrospective. It was a good time. It was a lot of fun. And I'm so excited for the next episode. So stay tuned for that. You can find us on facebook.com slash the console kingdom, twitter.com slash tckpodcast01 on our Discord at the console kingdom podcast and on youtube at the console kingdom anyway love you guys have a great one and game on my friends game